Micah Miller trying to spring a pass ahead. Nobody in front of Jack Paling. Moves on with a blast and scores! Jack Paling with the We aren't giving up on chances, and we just got to bottom line execute. Waits, waits, passes in front. Great save, Pelosi, as she robs a gopher in front of her. And that was number eight, Kippen Keller, on the great A opportunity. For me as a coach, that's the kind of D you're always looking for because uh, they don't grow on trees for sure, and, and he's done a really good job being a captain of a really young team this year. It's a really cool thing to see for them to uh, really appreciate what I've done on and off the ice. To the far half wall, Jack Paling trying to play it into the corner. Now Paling turns, squares his body to the slot, sends it up high toward Jack. Shaw makes his play through and they score! Right along the blue line, Nick Paling was in front of the net, and St. Welcome back to the Den Huskies Warming House podcast, fans. It is episode number 52 here. Uh, Crazy to believe we're already over 50 episodes here on this first week of March. It's almost playoff season here for college hockey. Uh, We're going to touch on what it means for men's hockey here after their win against Duluth, heading into the frozen faceoff for the NCHC tournament. We're going to talk a little bit uh, in our Huskies Illustrated Weekly Roundup about uh, quite a bit of happenings around the hockey world once again. Another busy week, and then we're going to have a lot of fun with a listener mailbag section this week to see what you fans have questions for us on the show and then i have some trivia of my own that i'm going to ask nick max and bringing back our huskies hat trick trivia for the first time in a long time you won't want to miss it here as we start in the center ice view news and notes Center Ice View News and Notes. Center Ice View provides you with the best coverage of St. Cloud State Huskies hockey from game notes, recaps, photos, and more. Go to centericeview.com. And the Center Ice View News and Notes in the Huskies Illustrated Weekly Roundup. Our first topic of the day is that the NCHC regular season has finally come to an end, and the league standings are all set for the NCHC tournament field up in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which starts this Friday, March 12th. There will be 3,000 fans in attendance at Ralph Angelstead Arena, with number two State Cloud taking on number seven Colorado College at 2.30 p.m. Number one North Dakota taking on number one Miami at 7.30 p.m. on Saturday the 13th. Omaha faces number five at Denver at 2.30. Also on Saturday, well, number six, Western Michigan, and number three, Duluth, are at 7.30. First to face off does not resume until Monday, March 15th, where the winner of SCSU and CC faces the winner of Duluth, as well as Western Michigan. The winner of UND Miami is the winner of Denver Omaha, and the championship game will take place on Tuesday, March 16th at 7.30 p.m. up in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Should be exciting, Nick. Can't wait to get that one rolling. Moving over to the women's side in the WCHA, there's little news in St. Cloud State as they are done, obviously, for the season. But the WCHA playoffs were in action. Wisconsin did narrowly beat Minnesota by a 5-3 score, while Ohio State trounced Duluth 7-2. Ohio State will face Wisconsin today on Sunday at 2 p.m. And later tonight, actually, at 8 o'clock Central Time, the 18 bracket will be announced for the NCAA tournament for this year, which will take place in Erie, Pennsylvania. Games for that will start on March 15th. 
However, moving to the men's side of the WCHA, something we haven't really talked about this year. Former guest of the show, Don Lucia, was named WCHA 2000's Coach of the Decade, presented by Anderson's Pure Maple Syrup and Spire Credit Union. His 510 wins and 837 games coached in the WCHA both stand number two in the league, only behind Jeff Sauer, who won 655 games at Colorado College and Wisconsin. Lucia's seven WCHA regular season titles at CC and Minnesota tie him with 1960s WCHA coach of the decade, Murray Armstrong of Denver, for the most won by a coach in the league. He is the sixth of seven coach of the decade honorees that will be announced by the WCHA during this season. The WCHA is also honoring an outstanding player and selecting an all-decade team for each decade as the league is celebrating 70 years of excellence. The WCHA 2000s player of the decade will be announced on March 4th. Moving over to the National Hockey League, Noah, the state of Minnesota here. The Wild had a little up and down week. Some spurts of great play. The Wild did drop three of four games last week, but they have pushed their record over the past 10 games to 7-2-1. and one. An overtime and regulation loss to Las Vegas before a split in Arizona leaves Minnesota with a little bit more questions than answers is ahead into three games this week. The Wild return home for two contests against the Vegas Golden Knights and another one Friday against Arizona. However, rookie sensation Kirill Kaprizov leads the team with 19 points in 22 games so far. Minnesota is also dealing with the departure of goaltender Alex Stalock, who was claimed off of waivers by the Edmonton Oilers last week. The 33-year-old Minnesota native has not played this season due to a heart condition called myocarditis after a positive COVID-19 test back in November. Myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart muscle and could have could lead to, excuse me, to a cardiac arrest if Stalock continued to play instead of rest. Moving over to Saturn news, the hockey world is reeling from the passing of a pair of influences on the game this past week. In Canada, Walter Gretzky passed away at the age of 82. Gretzky, who was the father of hockey phenom Wayne Gretzky, died from complications of Parkinson's disease. Many current and former players, coaches, and communities praised the work that Walter did for the game, naming him the ultimate hockey dad from making outdoor rinks, helping with community practices in Brantford, Ontario, and speaking publicly at many ceremonies and events. Battling through a coma from a skull fracture in his 30s, a stroke in his 50s, and health complications until his passing, Walter was a constant figure in Wayne's life and growth into an NHL superstar. His wife, Phyllis, passed away from lung cancer in 2005. On the American side, 1980 Olympic gold medalist Mark Pavlich died at the age of 63. Mark assisted on that game-winning goal to Mike Ruzioni in the legendary game against the Soviet Union in February of 1980 to help the United States capture that iconic gold medal. A veteran of 355 NHL games with the New York Rangers, Minnesota North Stars, and San Jose Sharks, Mark was plagued by potential effects from chronic traumatic encephalopathy, otherwise known as CTE, due to repeated collisions with his brain. He passed away at a residential treatment center from unknown causes at this time. Pavlich was in the facility after an incident in 2019 caused him to assault his neighbor, inflicting broken bones. After seven points in those Olympic games, Pavlich went on to set a franchise record for most points by a Rangers rookie in 1981 with 76. He retired after six seasons in the NHL. We wish the families of both parties uh, the best moving forward uh, through this difficult time. 
more news around the National Hockey League, some coaches that are hiring, some coaches that have been fired, and some other players retiring this past week. And Calgary, first off, Jeff Ward was uh, relieved of his head coaching duties after two seasons behind the bench. And the Flames brought in a familiar place by rehiring Dale Sutter, a two-time Stanley Cup champion with the Los Angeles Kings in 2012 and 2014, respectively. And he returns for a second stint at Alberta after he pushed the Flames to Game 7 in the 2004 Stanley Cup Final, where they lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning to capture their first ever franchise Stanley Cup. The 63-year-old has had a tough task in, ahead in Calgary as they sit fifth in the North Division. But staying in Canada, Montreal made another intriguing move to the coaching staff as general manager Mark Bergevin fired their goalie coach Stefan Waite, replacing him with former NHL goalie Sean Burke. Firings aren't exactly the most shocking business in the hockey world. This one was as White was fired in the second intermission of last Tuesday's game against Ottawa. Burke has been a scout with the team since 2016, but his new role is still yet uh, undefined with his contract ending the season. He spent 18 seasons in the crease during his NHL career, lastly with the Chicago Blackhawks. Excuse me. Lastly, the Chicago Blackhawks said goodbye to former defenseman Brett Seabrook. The 35-year-old had played all 15 seasons with the team before retiring just this last week and helped them to three Stanley Cups from 2010 to 2015. Seabrook hasn't played a game since December of 2019 with a long-term issue in his right hip. His career ends with over 450 points as a defenseman in just over 1,100 games played. In our final story of the weekly roundup, three suspensions were handed out. The injury train just keeps on rolling around the National Hockey League. And an intriguing story uh, is out there about a former NHLer this past week in Michigan. The big suspension comes from Washington as Capitals forward Tom Wilson earned his fifth suspension of his career, a seven-game ban for boarding Boston's Brandon Carlo. In the West, Edmonton's Alex Chason was given a one-game seat for a cross-checking major. And a two-game suspension for Joaquin Blickfield's high hit has led to Colorado superstar Nathan McKinnon missing at least a week with injury. Anaheim rearguard Hampus Lindholm will miss six weeks with a fractured wrist, and Nashville is without a pair of players for the long term, as defenseman Ryan Ellis is out four to six weeks with an upper body ailment, and centerman Matt Duchesne is out three to five weeks with a lower body issue. In the East, New Jersey's new captain Nico Heischer is week to week with a sinus fracture after taking a puck to the face, and Ottawa's Derek Stepan will miss the remainder of the year with a dislocated shoulder. Finally, a man who is no stranger to causing significant injury was arrested on suspicion of a DUI this past week. 46-year-old Todd Bertuzzi was reportedly jailed in Michigan, swerving all over the road and running a red light before he was pulled over. The former 1,150-game NHL veteran is most known for his sucker punch that led to the end of Steve Moore's career with the Avalanche in the NHL during a game in 2003. Once again, welcome back into the den. I'm Noah Grant, joined alongside my co-host Nick Maxson, who's looking about as Midwestern as ever today. Uh, Nick, speaking of Midwestern things, I want to throw this out there um, before I get your take on how you're doing this week. I, I did get a text last night uh, from my mom telling me about a sale happening. We don't really promote things on the show, but Duluth Trading Co. having a really big sale on t-shirts and underwear, Nick. I'm just saying for all the guys out there, if you're looking for some comfy underwear that are, I mean, the, the mark, the markdown price, I think, I mean, you got like $30, like pairs of underwear that are like 10 or $12 right now. And I think the sale is going to last for a couple of weeks. So definitely go and check that out. I would highly, highly recommend from personal experience. And that's all we're going to say about that. Uh, Nick, other than that, how are you doing this week? 
Well, that was quite the intro I was not expecting this morning. Uh, doing all right. You know, uh, the Huskies uh, took care of business uh, last night uh, down there at the Herb Brooks National Hockey Center. Not quite the overall performance we were hoping to. We'll actually touch on that a little bit later. I know that. But overall, it's been a good week. It's finally spring break for uh, St. Cloud State students this week. We'll get a little bit of a like, break from classes. However, there is some things that we're working on with Husky Productions leading up to the NCAT Frozen Faceoff. So uh, not much of a break for me, but uh, excited that it's going to be 60 degrees down here today in Minneapolis. So that's uh, a sign towards spring, even though true Minnesotan as I'm, you know, kind of sporting the, the you know, Paul Bunyan look today. Yes. Um, you know, I'm skeptical because we know that Minnesota likes to, you know, false advertise per se. So I'm going to enjoy today's weather a little bit uh, with a surprisingly rare day off that, uh, you know, I'm going to have um, after this. Besides a work meeting that'll last me till about five o'clock. Um, but beyond that, um, just pretty good. What about you up there in good old Botano, North Dakota? It is weird to think that we went through the end of February without snow. Like that's just, I can't remember the last time we've gone through that where I mean, like I look around and there's grass like everywhere, like not even the little pockets of snow that normally kind of like rest up against buildings or like, you know, the size of freeways, that sort of thing. I don't like, we don't see anything. And yeah, it's pushing about 45, 50 degrees coming up this week. So you said that St. Cloud State's spring break is this week, like March 9th through whatever. So we, our spring break is a week later. So I actually have, um, I have clinicals coming up uh, this week, our first clinical for nursing school. Um, and then actually right around when uh, the NCHC tournament starts on that Friday is actually when my spring break actually officially begins. So that's kind of really nice timing. Who knows? I'm close enough to Grand Forks. Uh, if the Huskies win on Friday, maybe I'll go check out and see see that second round game. Hopefully if they can make it there uh, on that Monday, because whoever whoever's going to be in that game, that's going to be a really good hockey game, I believe. Uh, but other than that, just kind of hanging out, staying busy. Um, I ordered... Uh, kind of like those home meal type things, you know, like that, like the, like the meal companies that they send you. Yeah, essentially. Um, and I was kind of skeptical. I've always kind of thought about it, but you know, I live alone. So it's when you're cooking for yourself, it's a little bit different as far as like, you know, how you're buying ingredients and, you know, portion sizes and serving sizes, you want to make sure you're making yourself, you know, leftovers and being able to kind of like get something out of the meal. But, you know, if I make meatballs and, I make enough meatballs for four days. Well, by day four, I'm just absolutely sick of eating meatballs. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just, it's a real balancing act. So I tried my first one. I had some fish and chips that, you know, you, you cut the fries yourself out of the potatoes and, uh, you know, cook them, cook the fish in the nice little batter that you made there. Um, I got to say, Nick, I was really impressed, really impressed with the product so far. So I guess we'll see. I think we have, we have chicken and zucchini on the docket. And then I think we have some kind of like beef mushroom, mushroom stroganoff that we have this week. So I'm pretty excited about that and been working out a little bit, although I don't think it shows. So a very busy week um, for us as we wind into the playoff season. I think it's fitting to move over into men's hockey here before we get into some listener questions here. Nick, we did have a trivia question for two-line trivia this past week. And we finally had our official winner for season one of trivia. Don't forget, trivia every Saturday at noon. Season one ends. uh, The last trivia will actually be April 11th, the day of the national championship game in the NCAA. So this season, St. Cloud State men's hockey's Vieti Mietnin leads the team with 22 points on the season, entering the final game today and actually ended the season leading the team. When is the last time a freshman led St. Cloud State in scoring, a.k.a. what year was it and who was it? Nick, do you have any idea who this would be? 
I have no idea, honestly. <laughs> Do you have uh, take take a stab at a season, and then I'll tell you the answer. How about that? How about 2013? We'll just stab at. Even earlier, back in the old WCHA, 2006-2007, Andreas Nodal was... That would make sense. Which is interesting because he did not lead the team in scoring his sophomore year. That was actually Ryan Lash as a sophomore that year. So that's good for uh, win number 12 for Brody Falconer. Uh, Nodal did finish with 18 goals and 28 assists for 46 points that year in 40 games played. Uh, And Brody, based on just math and eligibility, will end up as our champion of season one of trivia, which ends on April 11th. So congratulations to Brody. He's been one of our uh, avid followers since pretty much day number one. So uh, a well-deserving victory for Brody. And uh, we'll have to see if he shows up for season number two or if someone takes the mantle here. But Nick, men's hockey getting the victory in overtime, two points, a four to three win at the Herbrooks National Hockey Center yesterday on March 6th. I think my favorite moment in the game, uh, and it was tweeted by at Go Huskies Woo, that's five O's in case you were curious, uh, at 1.31 p.m. Central Time, quote, Micah Miller just murdered a man, end quote. <laughs> that was one heck of a hit by Micah. I asked his mom, you know, what, what he's been feeding that child, and she said pizza, so I guess that checks out. Um, Nick... <laughs> what was your impression of the Huskies hockey game? Um, And I have a feeling that if I ask you what your first period impression of the hockey game versus the full hockey game, uh, it might be a a little bit of varying answers, if you will. It would be. Uh, First period, we talked about this in the recap last night, is uh, probably the best 20 minutes we've seen them play. Um, I think I alluded to it a little bit uh, during that short recap that it almost seemed like that was sort of like their statement 20 minutes where they were frustrated and that's kind of where they got their frustrations out. Um, There was obviously a lot of emotion. They wanted to kind of reestablish themselves that they were the better hockey team and they certainly did so. Their problem was is that it's, and I don't know if this was indeed the case, but it almost seemed like they just ran out of gas or the emotion just wasn't there. I think they got a little comfortable in that two nothing, uh, excuse me, three nothing lead after the first 20 minutes. Um, and you can't do that against a team that's won back to back national championships. Yes, UMD isn't quite the same caliber team, but they're still the same very well coached uh, team that is under his coach Scott Sandlin. You just cannot give that team any room. They're, they're a resilient bunch. They showed it. They ended up tying it in the third period. And the Huskies, yeah, they, they kind of ran around a little bit, especially the second, third period. Defensively, was not great. Offensively, they weren't cycling the puck. They weren't, uh, you know, keeping the puck on their sticks. They were just a lot of one-and-done offensive chances. David Rennick bailed them out, especially in the second period. Had a couple of really key saves in the third. Um, and just essentially, that team survived to get to overtime. And Noel Walker uh, decided just to take the ice in front of them for that overtime winner. And a, a really bad, actually, defensive breakdown there for the Bulldogs there in that overtime. I did break that down on Fox 9 Plus uh, during that hockey game. Uh, so the Huskies did catch a little of a break. And if I'm Brent Larson, I love that first 20 minutes, but I'm not liking the rest of that game. And, you know, there's still some things to improve. But at the end of it, you know, there's at least a little bit of confidence going into uh, the first from the NCAA playoffs. Is it better than a loss? Because that would have been a pretty bad one uh, to take, especially when you go up 3 nothing against a hockey club. Yeah, I think the finish is really important. I, I know that uh, a lot of us, I, I was actually, for one of the few times, actually kind of yelling at my TV. I mean, with the frustration of the, the inability for the Huskies to kind of make some simple passes and 10-foot plays to just get out of the zone, you know, especially, you know, in the last couple of minutes, just pucks off the glass. If anything, alleviate that pressure. But the Huskies, they survived 
survived it. They weathered the storm. Uh, and that's a tournament type game. You know, you might have a game where sometimes you, f- you fall flat for 20 or 40 minutes and you got to find a way to hang in a hockey game. I, uh, um, you did mention David Rennick. We were going to touch on him. I think a little bit, I, uh, as you mentioned, that first period shots were 20 to six in favor of the Huskies. Uh, both teams finishing with 34 shots, but shots through the last two periods uh, were 28 to 14, including that lone shot in overtime for the Huskies. But that was in favor of the Duluth Bulldogs. You can tell how much Duluth really came out and uh, it kind of pounced on the opportunity. I think the worst thing that happened for the Huskies was the first intermission because they were just absolutely rolling. And it's, you know, sometimes it's difficult. It makes me think of, um, I know hockey players, it wasn't an abnormal game, but it makes me think of the Super Bowl halftime when you think about teams that are rolling so well in the first half and then that halftime becomes a lengthy thing and kind of, you know, it can change the complexion of the game potentially. And like you mentioned, you knew Duluth was not going to back down. Before we get to David Rennick, because I have a couple comments on that, um, the fourth goal that never actually happened until overtime for the Huskies. The original fourth goal that was disallowed because of that early whistle uh, might've been a changing point for the Huskies as far as Duluth kind of realized, hey, we just kind of got away with one there. Let's continue to pressure uh, and build our game. I, I know there was some frustration with, uh, you know, like we got screwed over by the refs, you know, that sort of thing. I'm looking at that from an official's perspective. That is such a routine shot that is coming in on a goaltender and his reaction, especially where the official was positioned uh, I, I think the officials' hands were tied. Was it a little bit of an early whistle? Whistle, maybe, but I mean, generally, a puck like that doesn't squeak through a goaltender like that. Um, I, I can't really blame the official, Nick. Can you? No. And so, a couple of things that people need to understand is that the, the officials are taught that most folks of a you know in this hockey market know this when they lose sight of the puck, they're supposed to blow it dead. Now, a couple of things can press a, a referee to. Not blow the whistle. First of all, the you know sort of the posture of Stayskull um, when he is sitting there and essentially pressing the puck. At least he thought he was pressing the puck against his pad and his blocker, and effectively giving the ref confidence that this puck wasn't loose. Um, you're pretty much just almost an automatic mode there for referees. Like, oh, yep, he's got it, and you're blowing the whistle. And from his position too, the referee was in the corner, the near side corner too. He's looking through the net at that point. The puck would have been nearest to him that's going to be blocked by the net anyway so there would have been no line of sight for the puck from his perspective as you mentioned though he made the correct referee call that he had to blow the whistle dead now i will say this a state skull felt the puck go through him he does a turn the referee is going to react differently to that i do think that there's a difference there where he turns looks like he's panicking a bit the referee then skates and looks for a loose puck maybe that goes in but that's just one of those things that nobody can really control. It's just part of the game. Um, I've seen some people compare this to like baseball umpiring. And, you know, I don't, I don't really buy that issue because it's two separate, completely different things. Uh, But at the end of it, yeah, it's, it's, I don't even call it a human error. I really don't. It's at that point, you know, the the puck to the referee's eyes are frozen and, you know, you, you almost wish that, I know the hockey night in Canada does this really well. They actually put a, a live camera feed on a referee's helmet mm-hmm. um, and they actually use it in replays. So I kind of give people an idea of what the referees actually seen and what they more importantly, what sometimes what they can't see. And at the end of the day, you can't as a referee assume things, right? You don't want to be part of, you know, deciding what happens in a game to me. It was the correct call to bullet whistle. There's just unfortunate. The puck was loose in a very, you know, particular spot behind the, the goaltender where nobody really could see it. 
Yeah, and at a point in the game where four nothing looks a lot different than three nothing or whatever, you know that fourth goal could have been a dagger. Uh, which I mean, I can understand Husky fans' frustration. You want that goal to count, right? The other thing that I think factored into that too, like you mentioned, besides the fact that it, you know it was it looked like a routine play and a routine save the puck actually didn't squirt free right away. You know, like it hit him and kind of like rumbled around and took that extra half second to kind of like come out from behind him. And that's another thing too, where sometimes if, you know, he thinks he's made the save, but the puck is out right away. One, the players are going to react because they're going to see the loose puck. But number two, sometimes the official that's on the backside or the reverse side is able to yell loose, you know, to kind of let the official know that that puck is, you know, it's free and that play should be blown dead. So, uh, you know, it was just a fortuitous bounce for Duluth. I mean, I, I know that, you know, the NCHC people like to kind of, kind of give a hard time about the officiating. Yeah. There's some good calls. There's some bad calls, but name a league, name a hockey league that doesn't have those right name, name, that adversity where it's like hey, come tournament time, you got to be willing to adapt to the adversity that you might face uh, on the ice sheet. Speaking of goaltenders though, Nick, um, I'm going to be honest with you. We got, we got two kind of nasty comments about our comments about uh, David Rennick potentially not starting uh, um, in, in yesterday's game because of how poorly he played the week previous uh, up in Duluth. So I, I kind of want to address that a little bit very quickly. Um, I would say Nick between you and I, and I'm not just saying that just because we're here and trying to, you know, cover our ass. Um, I, I would say we believe in this group and we believe in all three of the goaltenders, uh, you know, as much, if not more than any, any fan or team personnel out there. Like we want David to succeed. We want these guys to succeed. And I think like our job on this podcast, we kind of like to, you know, assess and evaluate what we've seen, but we also kind of like to pause it, you know, what is going through in that locker room? Uh, you know, it, it would not be the first time that we have seen a goaltending change close to a tournament time or playoff time for a hockey team. Like if, if Jackson Castor would have started, you know, I think you and I, when we went into the show last week, did, kind of really thought about like, you know, what is going through Brett Larson's head? You know, will he make this decision to take David out? But moreover, you know, what did we see? And what, what is a question that we can posit to our listeners for them to think about? Now, as Dave Starman kind of alluded to, one of my favorite things he said is, you know, you can walk up to us and tell us you suck and we'll buy that argument. You just got to tell us why. And we are more than happy to talk objectively about the game of hockey. I, when the comments kind of, you know, push more towards that personal side and don't really have an evaluation of what we said, you don't have to agree with our comments on David Rennick last week. You don't have to like, that's part of it is it's good that you don't agree because I think it drives our listener engagement and drives us to think about what we're thinking about. But I would say between you and I, Nick, you and I both, you know, knew that David Rennick probably was the guy. And if David was going to play that we wanted him to succeed and bounce back. And he did exactly that. So to sort of readdress that, you know, coaching staffs have such a difficult decision when it comes to goaltending and how do you, I suppose, what's the best way to move forward to help a goaltender sort of, you know, come out of the cauldrons of that, right? It's, it's not an easy thing. Some goaltenders need a, a game off. Some want to get back in the net right away and prove themselves. Um, no question. There's a conversation between Brett Larson and David Rennick. Hey, how do you feel right now? There's no question that David Rennick last weekend did not look great. Now, is it all on David Rennick? No, the team in front of him also did not look great either. So are we trying to pin this on one person? No, but I think people don't understand 
for those who haven't been around, you know, sort of the, the back door, you know, the back office of hockey realize that goaltending, you know, decisions are not very linear. They're not at all. Every goaltender is going to react differently. And at the end of it for a coach, especially now, especially the timing of that, you know, your second to last game of the regular season, you want your starting goaltender to be your rock. You want him to be locked and dialed in. And if that means you sit him for a game just to maybe you know, wake him up a little bit. And that kind of, you know, you put him in maybe the game afterwards. You've seen coaches do that. You've seen coaches, you know, where it's like, you know, I, I trust in you, but I'm also going to try to, you know, kind of push a couple buttons for you because I want you to come out with fire. And it looked like to me, David Rennick definitely realized that he was not up to his A game. He looked really, really good last night, mm-hmm. especially in key saves, a couple different breakaways he had. And, you know, we talk about the response game, right? David Rennick had a response game. Question is, can you keep that same intensity? That's my question throughout the rest of the playoffs, especially the conference wins and hopefully the NCAAs. So, no. And, and like you said, we're here to talk about this team objectively. If that means we have to say hey, they're not playing great and we believe this maybe one player or maybe the whole team from isn't playing well, that's fine. And, again, you don't have to agree with us. And do you th- I'm not here to kiss anybody's ass. I'm sorry. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of it, the players know this, the coaches know that um, there's a reason why that I can, you know, essentially call any one of these coaches up and have a conversation with them. And they respect that I'm out there trying to give them the truth, essentially, and just look for that. So I take great pride in that. Um, they know where I'm coming from. They know that I'm going to you know, approach them in a respectable way. And at the end of it, you know, these are tough times. And last week, it's very easy to dissect and essentially have a fired up emotions about a loss. We're not having this conversation if they won that game. So at the end of it, yeah, a lot of varying things and that's fine. But uh, I I stand by what I said, hundred percent. Yeah. And I I stand by you too, because it's a, it's an honest caveat to the game. And I think about this in the sense that I remember, you know, actually it was yesterday, one year ago, yesterday, the last time you and I were ever together and did a hockey game together and do you remember, uh, I suppose, I guess you probably weren't downstairs in the media deck, but I was covering for the Chronicle as well after we did the radio piece and, you know, doing the post-game interview with Brett. And you could see, you know, Brett came out of the locker room. You can see that demeanor when he knows his team didn't play well. And he's kind of like, oh, I got to go talk to the media. And I don't say that as an offense to Brett. I just, you know, as former players, you and I, we know what that's like to walk out of the locker room knowing you have to confront the media when you didn't play well, when you didn't have your your best effort. And he knows, you know, the question the question is going to be, Brett, why didn't your team play well tonight? What was the deal with David Rennick? You know, why why did this happen? You know, and those are difficult questions like to answer. You know, it, it, the game before when the Huskies win four to nothing on home ice, def- decisive win against Colorado College. Yeah, that's a fun day for the media, fun day for the coaches, because it's easy to be able to talk about that and move on. But, you know, when you have those weeks that are difficult, that's the adversity that's going to help you grow and become better as a team. And and like you mentioned, we are here to be objective, but we're also like internally, we are the biggest supporters of the Huskies because we get to see the ins and outs of these kids and the effort that they go through. Um, But I guess my response to that is, you know, if there's anybody, especially, you know, like close to the team that is frustrated and not that there was, but if like if they were frustrated with our comments, Uh, my response is if you're frustrated with our analysis of the game, the players have, the players are responsible for the outcome of the game. The players are responsible for that effort. So um, better. 
Yep. And, and they did for the first 20 minutes and then David Rennick held him in for the last 40. That's the David Rennick. We know, I think between you and I, we want to see that consistency piece. And we were frustrated with the weekend before and David's performance, because we know the level that David can get to. He's the all-time leader in shutouts in franchise history for this group. We know the level that he can get to. We just need to see that on a nightly basis. Last question about David Rennick and the men's hockey team here that save in the second period, the outstretched blocker save, uh, is that a save of the year candidate for the NCHC? I think it is. Um, at the end of it, you know, first of all, David Rennick, I, I think Pat Micheletti mentioned it pretty well. He went down really early in yeah. that slide from left to right and, you know, more of a desperation save, of course. So you can't really control your entire body. But, you know, sometimes as a goaltender, you just have to fight it off, right? Sometimes, you know, just got to get a piece of it and just hope for the best. And for Rennick, you know, he's leaning forward quite a bit. So there's not a whole lot of chest there to hit. And then he's able to just pull up that right blocker and just get enough of it. And yeah, it's that effort. It's that I'm going to try to put whatever I can to deflect the puck either to the side or over the net. I don't care, you know, give, you know, live to fight another day. And he absolutely did that. And that's, we talk about the goaltender that can steal you a game or a period. That was the kind of saving to me, David Reddick's, I would argue almost stole that game for the Huskies in the yeah. last two periods because of how well he played and considering how well, how much the team regressed in front of him for the first 20 minutes. Yeah. And you talk about desperation saves to give listeners a quick perspective here, desperation saves like that, that David made uh, essentially means that David was screwed <laughs> at that particular moment. It means that he was, I don't want to say out of position because it was just a nice zone entry there, but what goaltenders are taught is that um, when Nick mentioned the chest, when they're making that T push in this case, from his glove side to his blocker side, left to right, um, your goal is to keep your upper body as upward as you possibly can and take away as much of the net while extending the upper part of your body and limbs towards the side that you think the shooter is going to take, which in this case would be the far side because the shooter is, you know, on the opposite side of the ice. Um, and then as you see David start to tip forward, that means that his core or his movement isn't able to keep him upwards anymore. So like you mentioned, then it becomes uh, kind of a hope and a prayer, if you will, essentially flailing that arm up and seeing if you can put anything in front of the puck. Uh, David was able to make that save, but you have to credit his athleticism, those desperation saves. We see goaltenders that, you know, they make the saves that they one need to, which David did yesterday. And then they also make the saves that maybe they're not expected to make on a two on one rush like that. So um, hopefully he can continue. Obviously the Huskies back in action, 2:30 PM uh, on Friday, March 12th against the Colorado college tigers. Uh, the winner of that game will get the winner of the Western Michigan and Duluth game. So uh, a big, tough test and a big, tough road for the Huskies, I think honestly entering um entering that tournament. I mean, that's not an easy road to have to face, you know, if you win the first game, having to face the winner of Western Michigan and Duluth, it does not get any easier, but uh, I think it's going to be a test that uh, the Huskies um, hopefully respond to, but also they're going to need uh, moving into tournament time. I think it would be a lot, you know, different if they kind of had the easy road. I think it's going to push this team into a position that's going to make them better. Um, Nick, do you have anything to add on that? First of all, did you want to? No, that was it. Okay, cool. So we're going to move over to our listener questions here, a listener mailbag for the day here. Um, I do want to give a shout out. He didn't have a listener question because um, he does comment on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page. Usually we kind of only 
um, push out uh, essentially the episodes and that sort of thing. But there is a guy on Facebook, Nick, by the name of Jim Tracy. And I kind of want to give him his shout out because every single show that we do, he leaves, you know, a one paragraph, two paragraph, three paragraph comment about our show, what he liked, what he didn't like. That's really nice feedback for us to hear. And, you know, he's a very good supporter of the show. So Jim Tracy uh, from the Huskies Warming House podcast, a big stick tap and a shout out for you because uh, um, your engagement, especially on a platform that we, you know, only used for almost business in a sense, um, you know, for him to kind of give us our, his feedback, you know, not only every week, but every episode, uh, we really enjoy it. And I really enjoy what he has to say. Cause he's, uh, usually has some really nice things to say. Um, so Nick, we're going to go through, do you want, do you want the St. Cloud state questions first, or do you want the more, let, let's just roll through with some St. Cloud state questions to start here. Yeah. Uh, this one, um, we'll probably go back. We had, let me look here. We had five people that sent us questions. Some of them, the most we had was seven. That's from our boy, Caleb Peabody here. Uh, and the least amount we had was one. Uh, Caleb, I got to be honest with you, man. Uh, for as much as you tweet at us, you have yet to be annoying to us. And you are one funny dude. Nick and I were talking about that before the show. You are a funny dude, man. Um, so uh, kudos to, uh, we appreciate it. I, you know what's funny? I think with Caleb, uh, I don't think he ever like started tweeting at us or followed us until like right before the NCHC pod, like right in the beginning of December. Like he hasn't been following us that long, but it feels like he's been there forever. And that's, that's a credit to his engagement. But I think professionally he's like a brand and marketing strategist. So maybe he just knows how to promote all of us very equally. Um, but he had a couple questions. We'll start with some single state questions he had. He had some other ones that we're going to get to here, but um, number one, Nick, I want to posit this one to you because you're kind of, I think, the, uh, the resident expert between the two of us here. Uh, what St. Cloud State recruits are you excited about for the next year and beyond, assuming Wisconsin hasn't already signed them? <laughs> uh, so I've seen actually a couple of these guys, actually. And I think the first one that I really am excited for is Jack Pert, a defenseman from Grand Rapids. Uh, to me, he's more of that stay-at-home defenseman. Really good feet, though. He's very smart in his IQ. Uh, just overall, just sees the ice very, very well. And I think he's he's going to be a really good addition to the defensive core. Um, he was part of that Minnesota All-Star Prospects game that I called uh, last November. There with uh, a, a different parish that would be uh, <laughs> that would be uh, Mark's brother, to, to say the least. Uh, we have to have him on the show at some time. Uh, a couple other ones: uh, Mason Salquist and Josh Ludetke. Uh, a couple of forwards. Uh, excuse me, Mason is a forward. He's a center for Fargo. And then Josh Ludicke, uh, the right defenseman for uh, Des Moines. Both these guys can skate. Uh, Mason Salkos is having himself a year up in Fargo. Uh, Josh Ludicke, more of that offensive defenseman. Uh, all these guys, by the way, are supposed to be joining the Huskies uh, next season. So I just wanted to make sure that I made that. But also another Ashan. Coming into the fold, Grant Ashan, uh, who is with uh, Bismarck, obviously played down in Burnsville uh, for his high school as well. But uh, the last of Sean coming through is supposed to be joining us. He's up at uh, Bismarck. So those four for me are, are the big ones. So um, a couple other ones. Uh, Evan Bushy also is supposed to be, uh, yes, it is the brother uh, of current Huskies, uh, Huskies defender, uh, Brendan Bushy. He's uh, with the Minnesota Wilderness right now. So uh, to me, those guys stick out to me. But again, you, you talk about uh, you know, prospects and, you know, have they signed their letter of intent? Yet? I don't think they have yet. So there's still, 
there's still some uh, up in the air with those, but if they do indeed sign their NLI, those are the guys that I'd be watching for for next season. And that leads into a really good question. We might kind of bounce around between our five people that send us questions because a lot of them did send us multiple questions. And this one comes from at SCSU underscore Huskies, otherwise known as SCSU Hockey Fanatic. And one of his questions was the NCAA rule that this year doesn't count against student eligibility. For an NCAA coach, what do you do if your entire team wants to come back? How do you tell all of your incoming freshmen, like you just mentioned, uh, to wait another year? Or do you tell a senior he won't have a scholarship if he returns? Nick, uh, let's let's say, you know, most of the Huskies uh, do come back for their super senior year. Uh, what does Brett Larson, Nick Oliver, and Dave Shyak, uh, how do they manage that situation in your opinion? Well, I think it depends on the player, obviously. You know, I, I don't think you can blanket that. Um, at the end of it, you know, if every single senior comes back, so it's Brodzinski, you have Fitzgerald, uh, Will Hammer's another part of that, David Rennick, you're going to take those guys back in your roster. You know, you don't have to teach them. You know that they know the style. Um, you know that, you know, they know what to expect from the coaching staff. And I think it becomes a group, a group conversation at that point, right? Um, depending on these freshmen, I mean, I don't know how you can say that because, you know, could you argue with some of the players on this current roster? Um, um, I'm not going to point out names specifically, but some have not had a consistent spot on this roster, right? So kind of becomes a, you know, you're talking with some of your signees go, hey, this is, you know, what we have going on. This is what we're doing moving forward. Now, if the coaching staff wants these guys to come back, uh, that's one thing, right? So you have to figure out who's staying and who's going. And then with that, how many potentially open roster spots you have, and then give, I would say you give the freshman the choice. Hey, we got these, you know, you can definitely come and compete for a spot, but I think it depends on, you know, the freshman coming in, are they NCAA ready? And, you know, or maybe they would benefit from another year in junior, who knows? Um, so it's not as linear of a conversation as you think it's being, it's, it's being presented, Noah. Um, and at the end of it, you know, if, if you're bringing up guys like Jack Perth, who I do think is NCAA ready, uh, he can, to me, he can compete for spot in that blue line. I really do think he could. Uh, Mason Salkos, maybe he could compete for spot in the four, but maybe some of the others, are, maybe they need one more year, who knows? Um, that's a very, very difficult conversation. And I think, again, you, you start with the seniors, you, you figure out, you know, who's there, what circumstances. And you're, I think to me, obviously you keep those guys, no question, but then you just pose the question to your incoming freshmen, what they want to do. Do you think they can compete? You know, do the coaching staff think that they're ready? Yeah, at the end of it, again, this has been a year of the pandemic. So, you know, how much playing time have uh, these folks and juniors had? You know, maybe they need to do another year anyway because they want some more experience and want to develop a little bit more. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of a crapshoot, to be honest with you. Yes, so it to me, it's, uh, it's not quite as easy of an answer as one may think. Yeah, a lot of moving parts to that. I think number one is, is the player that you're getting, because uh, you have to remember a freshman uh, in the NCAA does not always mean true freshman. So you have to look at what is their eligibility for juniors. Some players don't have a choice and, you know, they right. they have to go to their teams. Uh, number two, again, how many, how many players are coming back for the Huskies in that super senior year? Uh, number three, um, how many roster spots, like you mentioned, are open? And are, if there's not roster spots open, one, are those players comfortable coming in, getting that NCAA exposure, but essentially not playing a whole lot? And number two, if they know they're probably not going to play a lot coming out of camp, uh, does Brett Larson and company, do they redshirt them and kind of let them wait that extra year and see, see that development? Because one of the things that you have to remember is you know, if you have a player who's turning 21 years old and has to go the NCAA route, sometimes either having them, I almost said on the taxi squad, but in, in the kind of that redshirt mentality or kind of on the practice squad, if you will, 
will still benefit them if you think they're going to grow in that environment, because then when those, you know, juniors now becoming seniors, guys like Micah Miller and stuff like that, when they leave and then the super seniors leave, then you have this big void of, you know, roster spots open and you want guys that can jump in and fill that void and be NCAA ready. We, we think about guys like Yami Cranola, a guy who had a decent freshman year, but has really jumped leaps and bounds in his sophomore year, that NCAA, you know, level of exposure and that learning how to train, learning how to get bigger, learning how to get stronger. Uh, some, those are things sometimes you can't teach on those junior teams. So you, you kind of have to individually, I think, assess what is best for the player, you know, coming in, going back, to junior or coming in and staying with the team. And then, like you mentioned, we just don't know how many of these guys are going to stay or decide to, you know, try to turn professional or just kind of hang up the skates and go do what they want to do. Um, so uh, yeah, a lot of moving parts. And it's a question that I think it's safe to say, Nick, you and I don't really have an opportunity to answer at this particular time. Cause we just, we just don't know. I mean, the number, the number one question is who is coming back and how many roster spots are going to fill. Don't forget. We've had a, you know, a handful of healthy scratches that have already been with the team this year too, that you think about guys like Will Hammer, the first two seasons of his career didn't play a whole lot. You know, you've got you guys, I think what, like a guy like Trevor Zins, maybe, you know, might start to start to jump into the lineup, you know, in his, in his next season as well. So, I mean, you got guys that, have been on the sidelines in that role a little bit that are going to be vying for those spots along with those freshmen trying to make sure that they're a consistent piece in that lineup as well. Um, so yeah, it'll be a very interesting discussion and one that I'm sure we will be revisiting um, very, very soon here. Uh, kind of sticking on the recruiting trail here, Nick, this is the only question from at fight the pants. Otherwise known as Johnny main still fight the pants. I feel like it's fight the pants. Uh, I got a feeling it's like, like where you eat too much food and you're fighting your pants, you know, like you're fighting your pants size. I don't know what, it, I don't know what it means, but that's my best guess on this one. Uh, but his only question was without Gibby, uh, Mike Gibbons, uh, are the Huskies still prioritizing international recruiting? And if so, who is involved and where are they looking? Nick, before I kick it over to you, um, I guess my two cents on this one is I, uh, do the Huskies prioritize international recruiting? I think they just prioritize recruiting players that are the best players, you know, available. I mean, it's, um, are, are they, do you know that if you don't take the time to at least sit down and watch video or maybe take a couple of trips overseas to see, you know, what the Swedish and Finnish leagues, you know, and, and in that international and European group is giving you, you know, you have to take the time and do that. Um, but, but I would say they prioritize the best player available and, you know, Dave Shyak and Nick Oliver are going to be two big, components of that piece brett larson a little bit not so much anymore but brett understands that you know the resources that they're tapping into and kind of the process behind that um but nick i i would say that they're they're just always on the grind i think if that makes sense this is probably the only time moving into playoff season where they're probably not going to be on the grind at this particular time and they're still <laughs> on the grind quite a bit uh so i i want to reframe the question you know because it's prioritizing international play you you mentioned it right. You know, you're always trying to prioritize the best player available, but to a sense, you're almost prioritizing existing relationship is really what it is because Mike Gibbons is the one that has established that. And, you know, as, and again, we have VT, we have Yami and, you know, that's a pipeline that can feature some really good young talent and you don't want to let that go. So to me, it is on Nick Oliver and Dave Shack to continue that relationship. And there's no question that with the history of this hockey club, that there is a very good pipeline of, of players coming over from, um, you know, the West European countries. 
And to me, I think that, you know, you, you have to at least massage that, you know, every single year. You just And whether there's actually players that you can get or players that want to come over here and take the college route, you know, that's one thing. But you have to at least step in and say it's, it's almost like you're a salesman. And at the end of it, you, you know, not all the time you're going to get a sale out of it, but you have to at least have the, Hey, how you doing? Take them out to dinner, you know, at least let them know you're still there kind of thing. Um, so yeah, you have to always make every connection a priority when you're recruiting, you have to always let them know you're looking. And at the end of it, whether it results in anything, uh, as far as product wise, I mean, that's secondary in my opinion, because at some point when the right conversations happen, we had it on the show what, a couple of weeks ago, Yami, he was actually not even been looking and then Gavin some score five goals and all of a sudden it was like sure I'll come over so you know at, at the end of it you know you just you have to have you know those repeated you know trips over there saying hi watching games and it's been tougher obviously with the pandemic so I think this year maybe even next year it might be a little bit more on the dry side just because of the travel limitations but uh, no question when they're able to more freely you'll definitely know that St. Claude will be over there looking for talent. And you mentioned this year and next year being a little bit dry. Those are actually things that we might not see the residual effects of until three or four years down the road, you know, as the recruiting process starts when guys are 15, 16, 17 years old in a lot of cases. Uh, we have three more uh, St. Cloud State questions uh, as far as, um, you know, the Huskies are concerned, obviously. Uh, and these Let's go. Let's stay actually probably on the recruiting piece a little bit. Obviously, you want to have a facility that is kind of top notch. Uh, the Herbrooks National Hockey Center is an older building. This one comes from at SESU underscore Huskies. Have you heard any additional conversations about the Herbrooks National Hockey Center going down to that NHL size 200 by 85? Uh, I heard that when they do it, it might happen. And if yes, how could this affect the Huskies considering how good they've always been on an Olympic sheet? Well, uh, to, to start off, uh, the Huskies are good on an Olympic sheet when they want to be, I think case in point last night. Um, but uh, to, to kind of reiterate uh, what the issue is, from what we've understood, the two two challenges one's a barrier and one's also a barrier that has to happen regardless number one is that i think nick you mentioned me pre-show that the foundation is actually like a dirt it's not a, it's not a solid foundation so you have some water table issues that are going to be a real big factor here um the second thing is the question mark of the ring size actually comes down to if i'm not mistaken the chillers that are actually in the four corners of the ice sheet and when you take those out, that is meaning that the boards and the rink kind of have to be resized because of the way that the new chillers are going to go in and be placed. Now, the challenge with this is number one, you're going to have some seating issues because you're taking 15 feet of ice <laughs> and narrowing the sheet. And number two, Nick, what is one thing, especially a college like St. Cloud State who struggle with their football program, what is the biggest factor that is going to come into that decision of having to change the sheet when they have no choice? It's money. I mean, 100%. Um, there's no question that uh, – and it's, it's not – new news to anybody. So, I don't, you know, when I say this, you know, this is not a knock, but the university is struggling with, you know, and, yes. and it's, they're not the only one with, you know, athletics funding. And at the end of it, you know, with the additions to the Herbrooks National Hockey Center, um, especially the new Performance Center, and then also over at Hollenbeck with the new, you know, weight room there, that's all been privately and donated, fund, you know, and donation funded. So, at the end of it, the university doesn't have any loose change. And, the, and as you mentioned that this type of project is not a cheap one. And it's one of those where you can't just fix 
the immediate problem or the acute problem for those in medical school. Um, it's one of those where, yeah, it's one of those where you, you know, if you dive into one thing, it's going to cause you to fix three or four other things. So it's not a simple answer. And it's one where that's why we've seen such a delay with trying to, you know, almost wait until it sort of dies kind of thing, right? Because you're having to address, as we mentioned, the water table aspect on the foundation of the rink. Um, you're also looking at, you know, okay, well, if we have to shrink it, which I think honestly they should, because I do think we, we touched on this a couple episodes ago that, you know, when you're trying to develop players for the NHL, yes, there's Olympic sheets. And I do think you should keep an Olympic practice rink as, you know, a backup, but I think you should be playing an NHL sheet to give them more preparation for the next jump in the hockey levels. Um, at the end of it, the herb is, was built to be an Olympic sheet. And as you mentioned, there's a, there's seating problems that come with that. There's sightline issues. There's bench issues that come with that. Um, so you, you're almost delaying it because when you change one thing, now it's like, now you got to change the whole freaking thing, right? It's like when you change or try to remodel your kitchen, you change out the appliances to black versus stainless steel. Now it's like, well, wait a second, this doesn't match. Now I got to change the countertops. And now I want to refinish the, you know, the cabinets. It becomes a very big project. And I think, you know, the athletics department knows that. And I think at the end of it, I think they're trying to look for another solution as to how can we fix this? We've talked to some people actually know it. And, and, and I think it was Bill Proud that told us about some of the projects that were slated back uh, in the early 2000s about that. I think it's the West side almost blowing that whole thing open near the street yeah. side and making that more of like an open concourse. Um, so, I mean, there has been some big plans, but, you know, again, funding is the big thing. And at the end of it, I don't think anybody is, you know, got pockets or, or the, the ability to even go to the state and say, we need money to fix the hockey ring. It's just, it's to me, the, the Huskies are kind of stuck with it. Um, and they're going to have to probably be forced, unfortunately, to with it if and when just the chillers probably just burn out. Yeah, and they've talked about they don't know if, you know, that's something that's going to happen in two or three years or something that will last them seven or eight, but there is a timeline on it. Like, it, it will happen. There, like, at some point, it will happen. So you hope that the university is in a bit better position, you know, and like you mentioned, they've wanted plans for bowl seating. It's like if you have to replace the chillers and the ice service, that means that, you know, that concourse that kind of wraps around, you know, between the lower and upper seating of the, the Herbrooks National Hockey Center, that might get extended another 10 feet just to bring that lower bowl forward, if you will and just kind of make it you know closer to the ice and still keep those sight lines you know that's going to be a project in, in and of itself you have the sound system that needs to be redone you know and kind of the game day um theatrics if you will so you know being able to kind of expand you know on the ends of that arena one it's a challenge and number two I hate to say it, but unless they're playing North Dakota or Duluth, St. Cloud State just not ha has not had the attendance, it, you know, either that that justifies that project as well. Back in the 2000s and the heyday of the WCHA, absolutely. But, um, yeah, the Huskies, they got a tough task in their hands, that's for sure. Uh, two more questions about the Huskies here. Um, and this one comes from our pal Derek Felska at Crease and Assist. Should the Huskies purchase the blanks from the Chicago reverse retro jerseys for the ultimate SCSU sweater? I, I'm going to go with no, just because I, I'm not a big fan of the Blackhawks ones. I mean, they're nice. They fit their thing, but I just don't think they're SCSU-esque, if you will. But Nick, I, I think the better question is, and I think we've had this discussion uh, earlier, a, a fair amount earlier on the show. Um, what could the Huskies do to kind of have some sort of like heritage or history-based uh, uniform, but still kind of keep that tradition of, uh, you know, Huskies hockey? You know, we, we talked about this, you know, when we had the Jersey poll, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. I'm actually going to pull up a picture because uh, David Carlisle actually is wearing the Jersey. I like them to see. 
don't know if people can see this, but yeah, those are that's nice. kind of the throwback to the, the old 60s. I think you can bring those back, and it, it's it's kind of the reverse retro. We know it's more of a throwback, and I think it looks really, really nice. Yeah. For, uh, for, for those who don't know, Nick is talking about uh, the jerseys. They have the black, the big like black stripe and then the two red stripes. And then it has the St. Cloud and the cursive lettering over the front. And, and I agree with you, Nick, I think it has to be something, um, you know, even if it's not a Huskies, like true Huskies, you know, vintage Jersey, I think if you kind of do that vintage twist a little bit on it and kind of do something like that, it makes me think of, do you ever remember um, Bemidji state hashtag Mike Gibbons? Um, do you ever remember their uniforms back in like, the mid 2010s, they used to have these kind of like cream colored uniforms. It was almost a spinoff of the New York Rangers, um, like winter yeah. classic style. And it yeah. was like cream. And then of course the green that they have there and they had, like they made like a custom crest, the Bemidji crest. I don't know a whole lot about Bemidji's team history. So that might've been a thing, but it, they certainly look like a newer twist on uh, kind of their own history as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I would like to see, you know, at the end of it, you want to, go back, you know, and kind of honor your heritage, especially through this program, which has been around for a while. And, uh, you know, obviously you want it to look nice. And so I, I don't know, to me, that would be my pick if I were to throw in, uh, you would more affectionately call the alternate Jersey, um, I think would be the better way to describe it. So that would be my pick. I agree. All right. So the last, um, serious St. Cloud state question, if you will, if Colorado college is forced to forfeit due to their COVID-19 outbreak, uh, they're talking about next weekend in Grand Forks at the NCAA frozen faceoff. Do they forfeit to the Huskies or does the bracket get reseeded, giving North Dakota a buy, thus the Huskies playing with Miami? As we mentioned right now in the top part of the bracket, it's North Dakota and Miami and Omaha and Denver in the top part of that bracket, Western Michigan and Duluth and St. Cloud State and Colorado College in the bottom half of that bracket. Nick, I, I think you have heard some rumblings. If a scenario like that would happen, especially with the the ability that Miami is actually on the would end up on the opposite side of St. Cloud State's bracket. Um, would it actually be a pretty simple thing to just move Miami down into that number seven slash eight spot against the Huskies and give North Dakota that buy? Or do you see a full restructuring of that bracket? So mind you, these are preliminary details that we're getting. Uh, so I'm just pulling up some of my notes. So thanks for, for bearing with me. Sure. Uh, but at this point, what we're hearing is not only CC, but because they were supposed to play Denver, we're also hearing that Denver is also possibly in that conversation with not traveling. So you could possibly have, as of yesterday, two teams not traveling to North Dakota because of COVID outbreaks. Now, when the what we're hearing, and mind you, this is not set in stone, so please bear with us, would be that North Dakota and St. Cloud would get buys as the number one and number two seeds, and then I think the rest would get reshuffled is what it sounds like. Um, but again, that's a very early thing. I know that um, Commissioner Josh Fenton had talked about some of those sort of scenarios. If a team couldn't uh, make it up to Grand Forks, how we would handle that. Uh, they talked about whether it was one team, would they let the one team that was supposed to play them just have uh, advanced in the next round? Should it be a seeding type thing, which what we're hearing, which is the top seed gets a buy or whatnot. So um, <clears throat> I think we're not going to know until very late, to be honest with you, Noah, because at the end of it, the conference wants every team, if they're po if they're if they're able to, to try to join this, right? They want the teams to play. Um, I, that's the way it should be. And uh, I, I think at some point, maybe Wednesday, if not, I would say probably Thursday at the latest, we'd have to know. And at that point, I think we would the NCHC 
uh, would have to, you know, give us a scheduling update. I'm sure they're working on a couple of different scenarios as we speak in preparation for that, but nothing official from the league as far as we know. But the rumblings for Hina is at number one and number two, we get buys if both those teams cannot make it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I hope we don't come to that because it'd be nice to at least just see every team. Really, the the big day is Friday, Friday and Saturday, just getting those teams out of the first round because then it really <clears throat> kind of narrows things down. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I don't know about Denver, but you kind of hope and expect that, you know, Colorado College is a team that gets bounced in the first round if you're a Huskies fan, right? So, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully we don't have to deal with that issue. But if we do, uh, luckily for the Huskies and their gritty win yesterday, they put themselves in a really good spot to, um, you know, be ready for that should that arise. Uh, and not a bad way to enter in the semifinal, although not playing in a week and a half before you face a team like Western Michigan or Duluth would be a real challenge. Uh, Nick, moving into NCHC talk here from our pal Derek Felska, who in the NCHC, a current undrafted player, is the most likely to get a real shot in the NHL someday and has a decent chance to be someone special. Um, when I pulled up my list and apologies uh, if he's actually drafted, I don't think he is from what I looked. Um, so I could be wrong here. Nick, I'm going to go with a goaltender. Actually, I'm going to go with Ludwig Pearson of Miami. You stole mine. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's who I'm going with. And not just because he's had a good year, but when you have a freshman who's putting up good numbers, uh, you think of a guy like David Rennick and a Los Angeles Kings draft pick. And, and that's the guy that I kind of thought of right away on the fly. Um, I, I, I would definitely believe, uh, I would think, Nick, I'm imagining as I'm talking here, you're probably going to North Dakota's roster and seeing somebody who's, who's got a fair number of points or checking out the NCHC standings here. I mean, there are a lot of good players that can really make an impact. And, but I think um, Ludwig is a, a viable candidate because he almost makes you think of a guy like Hunter Shepard last year, who didn't actually have that offer ended up signing, I believe with Hershey uh, in the AHL. So, you know, that's a guy for me that I look, if he can continue his success, especially on a Miami team that sorry, Miami Redhawks fans has been God awful this year. Um, you know, if you're able to post those kind of numbers, imagine what he's able to do with a team in front of him that is a little more put together. I know Miami, uh, they made some strides this year. Hopefully they can get back to form in the next season. But for me, he's the guy. Um, Nick, I'm rambling on here to give you some time to try to find somebody Thanks. here. You're welcome. Um, while, while you're looking for that, Nick, I will answer a couple of questions from Caleb J. Peabody. Uh, number one, his first question was, can you confirm if this phone belongs to Noah? It was a picture of a jitterbug phone. Uh, Caleb, I actually have an iPhone 8. Um, and I am slated to get an iPhone 11 pretty soon here. So hopefully I will never miss trivia ever again. Number two is, can you tell me who the biggest Micah Miller fan is and also who runs his official fan account? Well, since you're a marketing guy, Caleb, you are the official fan account, but I'm going to go against you, Caleb, here. I'm going to say the biggest Micah Miller fan is probably Melissa Miller, <laughs> considering the fact that she's, uh, you know, related to Micah and feeding him pizza all the time. So um, that would be my one here. Nick, how are we doing? You know, I'm just going to throw one out there, okay. honestly, to, uh, just to be, how about Easton Brodzinski? He's undrafted. Who? Um, it's Easton Brodzinski. Who? Easton, yeah, Easton Brodzinski. <laughs> now, and he, now, there's a caveat to that, obviously. Um, I think for Easton, we all know his offensive production, right? We all know what he can do. He's a great shooter. 
Um, he knows he can put the puck in that. In fact, he got the overtime winning goal yesterday. He's not a full rounded player. Um, to me, he still needs to develop a, a two way game, but if he's able to do that, I think he could be a solid player. Um, so to me, I, and at the end of it, I know he's had conversations with Boston and the Los Angeles last year. So he was actually, you know, getting offers even as early as last season to join the NHL and then whether he, was able to kind of break out of, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, some of his tendencies, if you want to call it, it mm-hmm. is uh, yet to be seen. But I do think Easton, if he's able to get a shot and, you know, he gets into, I think, a coach like uh, John Tortorella, Daryl Sutter, someone, some of that is, you know, going to mm-hmm. be, you know, kind of pushy with them. Like, hey, you're going to play this way. You're not, you're, you're going to spend time on the bench. I think he has actually a really good shot to be a pro. Yeah, I definitely agree. One of those tendencies I, I think that I would point out being being objective about this, and granted, Easton, great goal scorer. I think one of his natural abilities is to find that soft space in the ice. And when he gets a puck, he's a guy who might only get two or three shots a game, but he makes them count. You know, he's a really good, and he's a guy who has the ability to be a power play specialist, especially maybe a half wall or a pivot guy in the middle of the ice. I think the biggest thing with Easton, like you mentioned, that needs to improve, I uh, skating but not so much skating just a little bit of compete i think just seeing that full 60 minute effort and making sure that you know he's engaged from the get-go I mean, obviously he had the game winner last night in overtime i think the biggest thing with easton is when he's on he's aggressive he's on pucks he's making plays when he's off uh he kind of disappears a little bit and isn't winning those pucks along the half wall or in the corners that are so vital to a guy of his size and his stature uh to be able to create those plays so um but we believe in him and i like that pick i really do and, and hopefully that you know his showing both in the NCHC frozen face-off and the, hopefully the NCAA tournament not only is good for himself, but he's a very vital piece of this Huskies offense and trying to get them uh, rolling here. What do you got here, Nick? Well, just, just to add on to that, you know, the reason why Easton's my pick is you can't teach a natural goal scorer those types of skills. You just can't. And scouts know that. So you can, however, sort of push and push buttons to get people, as you mentioned, compete level, uh, right positioning in the defensive zone, penalty kill, that, that stuff you can teach. You cannot teach a release. You cannot teach a player how to find those soft areas. That's very valuable to hockey scouts. And I think that's going to be the big reasons why he's had conversations in the past and even more so after his senior season here if he does not return to the Huskies a big reason why he'll be having I believe additional conversations with NHL's clubs as well I agree we've got about five or six questions left some of them a little quicker some of them a little bit longer we got about two or three NHL questions and uh, the only question here Nick I think you're gonna like this one in the college game here uh, this comes from at SCSU puck addict and the word addict is capitalized uh, otherwise known as Mahoney he's got some funny takes uh, I believe he does a podcast as well but uh on a scale of elephant man to the swamp thing, how ugly <laughs> is Bob Mosco in maroon and gold? <laughs> Oof. Well, you kind of pinned us on a corner there, didn't you? Yes, uh, yes, he did. <laughs> I, you know, here, here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say about this. Um, I, honestly, I think the thing that doesn't go in Bob Mosco's favor as far as the look behind the bench is the choice of face mask for COVID that he's got the yellow, the yellow that he's got going on there. Cause you got the, the big bright gold, you know, in, in the maroon, you know, in maroon and gold M for Minnesota, but then his yellow is like this. It's this light lemon type thing that he's got on his face. And I, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking, Bob, like, you make like 500 grand a year. Can't you get a face mask that like matches your. <laughs> you probably get that for free, honestly. So. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know if it's a team protocol thing. I would say um, 
too. It's part of the, it's part of the centennial season too, where they're doing like those yellow breezers too. Like, geez, like, I think that's part of it. I I don't think in a, a, you know, if they're not doing something different because they're celebrating the 100th season, you see that color behind the bench, honestly. I think we should get Bob Motzko some hundredth anniversary yellow pants to wear on the bench. How good is that look? <laughs> I think, you know, I will say, I will say this though, the credit for the fact that we still got a Bob Motzko question is credit to the fact of how good of a coach he really is. And I think realistically how much St. Cloud state fans really miss him and they should, because he is a heck of a hockey coach, obviously on the international and collegiate stage, help build this program. So I think, I think he's, he's up in the swamp thing just because of the fact that the Huskies would like him in our swamp instead of the Minnesota swamp, if that makes sense. So, and there's rumors that he could be visiting as a visiting head coach to the herd, possibly as an exhibition game next season, early as that, there are a lot of talks about that. So we'll keep you guys updated about that. And the question mark is uh, how many cheers and how many boos do we get? Is it going to be 60, 40, or is it going to be 100 to zero? We'll have to find out, but it'll be interesting. None, nonetheless, uh, as much as you love him or hate him as a Huskies hockey fan, he was, he is one heck of a coach and it's difficult to see him go, but Brett Larson, uh, a great guy. I actually have a trivia question about him today and our trivia between you and I here, Nick, uh, moving into, uh, let's start, let's go with some NHL things. Cause we only have a couple of those here. Uh, Minnesota wild. Uh, this one comes from Caleb as well. Who should the wild target to acquire before the trade trade deadline? Is there anyone you'd realistically think may fit in well with this group? This is an interesting question. I a do week, have one. And a week ago, I think the answer might've been a little bit different with how well the wild were rolling, but now I think it's a good topic for discussion. Uh, I want to bring somebody back and his name is Eric Howla as a center. And, and here's why I say that this team is, the current Minnesota wall team is fast. Um, they are a much faster hockey team than they were even last season. Uh, obviously some personnel shifts, some guys coming in, uh, a rookie might have something to do that too. Uh, unbelievable skater Kaprizov <laughs> is, especially on his edges. It's unbelievable. He could literally teach a clinic with how well he skates. Um, but to do that, you need somebody that comes in, um, who can match that speed. And he's a guy that could be a, a really good depth piece who is versatile. He can put him at center or the wing. And a guy that to me has got the capabilities of being a good hockey player. He had a good stint in Vegas. And I think if you get him with good enough talent, I think Eric, Eric could be a good sure depth piece going into the postseason. And to me, that would be the one guy I would target. Um, Cause it looks like Nashville is going to about to blow themselves up here pretty soon with just not having the season uh, that they're they're hoping for, especially with some of the contracts that they have, you you might be seeing a yard sale coming out of Nashville over these next couple of weeks. Yeah, a fair amount of injuries in Nashville too, and almost nobody is safe. I mean, Philip Forsberg is on the trade block, which tells you something right there. I I guess I don't really have a player in mind, but I think I think if I'm the Minnesota Wild, uh, I'm actually going to go the other direction. I think that they maybe need uh, maybe some winger help. And when I say that, just kind of maybe that middle six winger that's going to give you a little bit of production. Um, you know, he's not going to wow the world, but I think, I think about it. The question mark becomes how enamored are you with Nick Bukestad's play and how much do you think Victor Rask will continue to produce? I think if you have one or the other, that's continuing to do that. I think then that changes that conversation because Nick Bukestad, uh, even when he was with Minnesota as a gopher, um, also Eric Hall, a former gopher as well. Um, Bukestad is kind of a streaky goal scorer. You know, he has kind of those stretches where he has two or three games where he's lights out and then, you know, two or three games where he's kind of, you know, not that he plays bad, but he's just not really producing or kind of getting on the score sheet. So for me, uh, I, I wouldn't mind a winger. The other thing that might be important to think about, I know that uh, you obviously have some good guys in the AHL, but maybe th- picking up, I, 
I don't know, maybe a third goaltender and just having a third goaltender on that taxi squad isn't the worst idea in the world. If you're pushing closer to playoff time and believe that Minnesota is going to be a playoff team, maybe just picking up kind of a cheap option to make sure that, you know, in case of goaltender injury, you have somebody there at worst, a practice goaltender, it's going to have to be someone who's older, uh, you know, maybe isn't getting, you know, maybe isn't happy with their situation, just wants to change the scenery, but it's, it's hard to sell that. But then again, the players don't really have, a you have that, you have that in Andrew Hammond. Yeah, I suppose. But I guess, so, I, but, but again, you know, what if you're not enamored with Andrew Hammond's play? What if you don't, you know, I don't think you have the choice, honestly, yeah, at this fair. point, only because, and, he, and the reason why I picked up Eric Hala was because his cap hit is very small. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, the, the, every team, the while they're like 16th or 17th on the salary cap uh, depth and they're under a million dollars in free cap space. So it, yeah. it, it goes to show you how tight everybody is. And it's very difficult in this specific trade deadline. I think it's going to be very, very quiet because essentially, you're going to, if you're going to have to make a trade, it's going to be money for money. It's not going to be those big trades. You're going to see it's like a Mark Stone going to Vegas for three draft picks and maybe a couple of players. You have to match money for money with these trades just to get them to work for both teams in the salary cap. So to me, Eric Hall, could be one of those guys where his cap hit is small enough and maybe you move a different piece out of the way if you're not happy with this play, like you mentioned, like Bukestad or somebody else. So, but to me, you know, that would be the one guy you could acquire, but again, you're still up against the salary cap and this very particularly interesting season uh, from the pandemic. Yeah, and you also got to think about too where are the Wild going to be at the trade deadline. You've got you've got Benino, you've got Johansson, you've got Bukestad, even Ian Cole. Maybe only one or two of those guys are coming back at best. So you got to think about you know it, will the Wild be sellers at the trade deadline? We just don't know uh, where they're going to be here. Uh, we got, I think, one more NHL question here and then a couple of quick ones, and then we do have to get rolling because we do have to hit your trivia here, Nick. Uh, this one comes from Derek Felska as well. Will we see the NHL back in Quebec again someday, or is it simply not meant to be? Nick, I think my first verdict is I'd love to see it. I don't think it's going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. Um, it, it's weird because they built a very nice arena out there to attract an NHL squad. The problem is, and the reason why the Nordiques left in the first place was the economy in Quebec City is not great. Um, it's the, you know, you forget a sports franchise. It's not just about the team. It's about the community. And can they, can the community support it financially? And from even couple of years ago when Gary Bettman went up and took a look at the arena, he made it very clear that, Hey, this arena is gorgeous, but there's still a lot of issues plaguing Quebec city that to me doesn't financially support a franchise. There's a big reason why. And that's part of the reason why the North stars left too. They did the, the public option wasn't there to support a, new stadium for the North stars, the Mets center. Um, so they would flock to Dallas where they're able to get some public funding. Um, so you forget that the public per, uh, I guess, economic impact is so important in these decisions. And right now Quebec city just doesn't have it. Um, does that not mean it in the future? It could maybe, but there's a lot of work to be done in that city specifically. And at the end of it also now with 32 teams, of Seattle coming into it, I don't know when the NHL is going to look to expand and next. And if they do, so uh, to me, it's going to be a while. And uh, you know, I, I, if, even if that does happen, I just don't see it in the near future at all. All right. Three more questions here for you, Nick. Uh, Caleb Peabody has all three of those. Shocker here. Uh, <laughs> number one, what is Nick's favorite hiding spot at the Herbrooks National Hockey Center? And why does he like to utilize it most during the Huskies warming house recaps to hockey games? Uh, 
So that it's not a hiding spot, but it's the uh, it's in the t- television studios at Stewart Hall. Um, that's where uh, we taped those, just because I, I was producing behind the camera those intermission segments. So I was trying to help, um, you know, some of my co-partners with some of the ideas, you know, what to cover, some of the things hockey related wise to discuss. Uh, breaking down those intermissions but then uh, obviously last night I had the opportunity to finally do it myself on camera which was a very very fun opportunity uh, but down there that's I mean because I get to see all 16 cameras on one screen and so if I miss a play or if I want to go back and uh, see something I have the ability to call the replay and see something to help me break stuff down so to me that's my favorite spot to be because I can see all 16 cameras going at once and I get the best angles uh, for whatever just happens on the ice. Yeah, I certainly enjoy uh, being obviously up in the media deck. I would say the suites, mostly just because we don't really get to go up there a lot. But I always think it's cool being in a suite in a hockey rink. It's just kind of cool, especially the ones on the end, because you've got the big glass that overlooks the the thing. Um, uh, how about, how no. about being on the ice, too? <laughs> like- on the ice, yes. So I was able to film a couple of things this last weekend too on the ice. But I think also for you, Noah, going back, I'm just going to flip this on you. How about the cafeteria? Because the cheesy bread was your favorite snack, uh, either prior to the game oh, or definitely intermission intermission games. It was uh, the garlic cheese bread that you just couldn't get enough of. Oh, yeah. I was a sucker for that. Um, oh, <laughs> have we ever told the marinara story uh, on this? Remember when University of North Dakota came to town? You, we, I don't think we have. Oh my gosh. Okay. So uh, Caleb, you, you've inspired a, a very funny story here that I think all Huskies fans are going to love because screw North Dakota. Right. So, so if you know where the, the media deck is in the Herbert National Hockey Center, if you go down, if you're on, if you're looking at the media deck on the right-hand side is where usually KBSC and the radio right next to Jim Erickson, we're kind of on that end. And there's that stairway that goes down into like the last concourse exit, not on the end, but the first one where like, you can exit out the side if that makes sense. And when you go down there, there's it's right next to the elevator is that little like um, the little food kiosk there. And they always have like the cheesy bread and the hot dogs there. So I was a sucker. I'd always get two cheesy bread, two hot dogs before every game and like something to drink. Right. Um, so, yeah, I was a sucker for that. But every time. I would go in. Yeah, it's bad they knew me by name and they knew what I was ordering. Like I would just walk up and they're like, okay, grab two cheesy bread, two hot dogs today. I'm like, oh boy. Um, I'm like, we've only had like eight home games. Um, so so <laughs> I, I I go I go in there and I get my cheesy bread and I always get marinara sauce with it, right? So I get marinara sauce, I go, I eat my cheesy bread and usually I, I get it, they usually open about an hour before game time and I'll get it about 50 minutes before game time. So I have time to eat it, kind of digest it. And then, you know, we'll get ready for the pregame and our prep and what, what are we going to talk about in the pregame show? Um, so I get done, we do our pregame show and it's, I, I don't know if it was like right before the national anthem or like somewhere around there. And I'm carrying my tray that has, you know, the, the half marinara sauce thing, I'm carrying it to the garbage can, which the garbage can is about 10 feet to our left. And usually who else is to our left is usually um, the visiting like radio guys and like their media people or their stats people that are kind of over there. Well, they have all their, like their cases of, you know, like equipment and like brand new equipment and stuff. And like all the UND like jackets hanging up on like the thing or whatever. Well, I was wearing a vest that day and the, the code hooks that are right next to the garbage can, I snagged it on my vest and it caused my other arm to come through. And I sprayed marinara sauce all over the UND guys equipment, all over their coats and that sort of thing. And like, I was just traumatized because I didn't have any napkins up there. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And so part of me is like, part of me is now I'm in a dilemma. I'm like, do I tell these guys 
or do I go down to the, the kiosk, get some napkins and try to handle it without saying anything? Because the thing is, do I believe that these guys are engaged enough that they're not going to notice that I just spilt marinara sauce all over their stuff I, you know, in the time that it takes me to go downstairs and come back? Or do I tell them? So me being the kind-hearted St. Cloud State student that I am and not a North Dakota, um, University of North Dakota student, I go, hey guys, I just want to let you know, I actually just spilled, you know, marinara sauce on your guys' stuff. I'm going to grab some napkins. I'll clean it off. They gave me the nastiest look I think I've ever seen. And I'm just kind of like, well, I could have not told you at all. So whatever. I hope North Dakota loses to Miami in the first round. Anyway, moving on to our last couple of questions here. Uh, Caleb also asks, uh, what is your go-to order at Taco John's? How much TJs are we ordering when the Huskies win the Natty this year? And how many brewskis and dooskies will we crush if the Huskies win the Natty? Uh, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a big brewski dooski guy. I mean, I'll, I I dabble. I'm a social social drinker. Um, I, I don't know. I suppose we probably get a little freaky with it. I guess if the Huskies win the national championship, you know, it'd be the first one. But they got to get there first. So that's where it's kind of. I'm a little skeptical. Nick, my go-to order at Taco John's is a number five uh, with crispy chicken, large potato Olays, and a medium Dr. Pepper. Do you know the Taco John's menu enough to know what you enjoy? No, not really? No, not really. But uh, <laughs> potato Olays, though, I mean, even just even those by itself is worth, you yeah. know, worth the price of admission. Here's so. the challenge with potato Olays. You can tell which Taco John's are good and which aren't because some of them oversalt the potato Olays, and that's yes. a problem. You can't oversalt those suckers. Um, all right, last question. It also has to deal with food. Nick, I pulled up the I pulled up the menu here um, because I couldn't remember. I kind of remember what I used to get. Uh, what is the best order at Val's? I want burger toppings and shake flavors included. Hmm. This is a challenge. Yeah, exactly. I was like, Nick's not going to remember this. Um, but for me, um, guys, I'm a fatty. I get a triple cheeseburger with bacon and cheese and everything on. I like. I get the full shebang, large fries, and for me. Uh, if I'm feeling normal, it's a strawberry shake, but as far as like the specialty shakes, when they come out with the pumpkin or like the cheesecake, like blueberry or strawberry cheesecake, that's what I'm going for. And I get a large in that too, because Val's, you can get that triple cheeseburger with everything on it, large fries and a shake for like $10 and you will be stuffed. So um, yes. That that is that is my uh, that is my order at Val's, Caleb, although I haven't had it in a long, long time and I'm kind of sad and jealous now that... um that I haven't had it, but Nick 1041 in the morning here for us. And we are going to bring back Huskies hat trick trivia. Uh, if I remember, I got six correct in the last one. I, I don't even know how to be honest with you, but, um, I, I don't know. I read the, these questions to somebody last night. They said they were really hard. So you might get like two of them. I have no idea. Um, we're going to try and we're going to try and have some fun here to end the show. Huskies hat trick trivia. Nick has 15 seconds to answer the question. I'm going to give him however much time he needs, but uh, I, I mean, I can guesstimate 15 seconds here. So here's an example of how the trivia goes here. Uh, I will ask a question, give four answers. And Nick has the opportunity to try to guess to see what he thinks is the correct answer. So Nick, the example question is when was the only other time we had Huskies hat trick trivia on the show, May, June, july or august of 2020 may june june 14th 2020 and episode number 15 with bill prout oh yeah long time ago it's the only other time we've actually done the trivia okay nick maxson are you ready we have one question ready about brett larson, one question about brett larson and a bunch about uh playoff and team records for the huskies no no player questions for you this time so 
Yeah, because you gave me all player questions last time, so I thought we'd switch it up. All right, number one, Brett Larson, current St. Cloud State head coach, has won two national championships, both with the Duluth Bulldogs in 2011 and 2018. In his third season with the Huskies, he looks to bring St. Cloud their first ever NCAA trophy. However, the former coach of the year has a bachelor's degree in what field? Kinesiology, criminology, business management, or political science? Oh, I knew. I remember reading this too. Oh, son of a gun. Um, isn't it business management? It is not. It is criminology. He left for professional hockey in 1995, but got his degree in criminology in 2004 from the University of Minnesota Duluth. Isn't that an interesting, when you look at Brett and you talk to him, that kind of fits the bill a little bit. It makes doesn't sense. It? Doesn't it though? It does. I was, I was thinking about when I was listening to Brett do his um, like post game thing uh, in last night's game, I kind of thought about like, he has a really uncanny ability to calm people down. Like I swear I could be agitated and Brett would be like, Hey man, you just got to take a deep breath. And I think I would calm down. I think he has a really good ability to kind of like take the temperature of the room and really assess the situation. He's got really good people skills. So criminology, I think he's able to pick out the people who don't have good social skills and are doing bad things like myself. So ill-advised stuff. Yes, definitely <laughs> ill-advised. Number two here, St. Cloud played their 125th game against Duluth yesterday, winning four to three in overtime. How many meetings between St. Cloud state and Duluth have gone to overtime since they first met in 1946, 23, 26, 30, or 34. That's Let's go with 30. Nope, 26. That, that one was the only one that I would say is probably truly unfair because how would you know? Uh, 26 is the correct answer. St. Cloud State has only lost seven of those meetings. A lot of ties in the early days before they changed, obviously, the, the rules. Uh, Nick, uh, random question. How many games between uh, St. Cloud and Duluth have gone to overtime this year? Four. Isn't it their fourth one? Three. I think three. it's three. I was going to say three or fourth. I think it's three. Anyway, I could be wrong on that. I thought it was three when I looked. Anyway. All right, Nick. Oh, for two. Oh, for two. I think those are probably the two toughest ones that you're going to get all day, but we'll see. All right. Number three. There are currently eight teams in the NCHC, in case you didn't know. Uh, St. Club oh. played its first future NCHC opponent, Minnesota Duluth, in 1946, followed by North Dakota in an eight to one win in January of 1947. Which current NCHC team was the last team the Huskies played? for the first time Ooh. Miami Colorado College Nebraska Omaha or Western Michigan Ooh. Western Michigan Western Michigan is correct December 29th of 2011 Miami Ohio 1987 Colorado College 1989 Nebraska yeah. Omaha 1998 uh, kudos to you on that one. Isn't it kind of wild to think that like two years before the NCHC was, was there, I guess that they were, I mean, I suppose that they, their program was kind of, you know, doing that was kind of my thought. Yeah. It yeah. was kind of an up and coming program. Exactly. I figure that's one. If you kind of like put your noggin together, you might've just got it. Just kind of thinking about that. So congratulations, Nick, that's one on the board for you. I'm going to write down that you have one on the board. Cause I'm sure I'll forget in a minute here. Uh, no goose egg. That's, that's good. Yeah. Better than nothing. <laughs> uh, number four, St. Cloud state has played 16 exhibition opponents in its history and was set to play Guelph again for the first time since 1990 this season in 32 exhibition games, St. Cloud state has tied two of those but how many exhibition games has St. Cloud State lost? Two, 
three, five, or six? <laughs> three. No, five. They have lost. They have lost. Yeah, that was a tough one too. I, I was I was reading through these last night. I'm like, I'm like, I think I kind of screwed them over a little bit here. Anyway, five That's is right. five is correct. Uh, a little bit of team history for you. Five is correct. Two against the University of Alberta, one against Manitoba, and two, this is the one that probably got you, two against the U.S. under-18 team. Don't forget the oh, – yeah. yeah. So there's, right. a, there's a team. The ties came against Western Ontario in 1990 and the U18 team. So that's the one that I think kind of throws people off as they think, well, the exhibition game at the beginning of the year, they should hopefully win most of them. Well, don't forget the U18 teams against like in the Christmas tournaments sometimes. Um, number five here, Nick. Throwing it back to the old WCHA during the WCHA playoff first round series only, not the final five. Which team did St. Cloud State have the most wins against in all time playoff meetings? Minnesota Duluth, University of Minnesota, Wisconsin, or Alaska Anchorage? Oh. It's not a it's not Anchorage. Team that I have to get there is it Minnesota? It is not Minnesota. It is the University of Minnesota Duluth. Oh. Eleven wins against the Bulldogs, six losses. They are three and nine against the U of M, seven and four against Wisconsin. Oh wow! And four and zero oh against Alaska Anchorage. So I uh, probably the best. I would say winning percentage against Alaska Anchorage, but the most wins against Duluth. Kind of crazy to think that they played seventeen times. Like it's a lot of hockey. Number six here, Nick, um, since the inception of the NCHC, St. Cloud State in both the first round and the frozen faceoff combined, okay, so all playoffs, has a combined losing record against how many teams? Zero, one, two, or three? So NCHC and NCAAs? No. And so the first round, so like the, the play-in rounds, the best of three play-in rounds. Okay. It, Plus the frozen faceoff, so like their record. In oh, both of got those, it. So like their record against North Dakota in both of those scenarios combined. Got it. So do you want so me to North read Dakota it? would be one. Do you want me to read it again? No, I got it. Okay. Zero, one, two, or three, right? Correct. I'm gonna go with two. This one might shock you. Zero. What? They are 13 and eight overall, eight and five in the first round, and five and three in the frozen faceoff. The only team St. Cloud State has a losing record in the first round against is UND. They are 0 and 2, but they are 2 and 0 against them in the frozen faceoff. And the only team with a losing record in the frozen faceoff that the Huskies have against is Miami. They're 0 and 1 against them. So unless the record book is wrong, I have zero in that, which is, isn't that interesting? To think that that's very interesting. Yeah. So we got a lot of uh, frozen face-off questions here. I think I have two more of those. Number seven, this will be the seventh year of the NCHC frozen face-off excluding 2020 and this season. How many times have the Huskies qualified for the tournament in the six other seasons? It has been held three, four, five, or all six. Hmm. Seven five, close four. Hopefully, technically, it'd be five if it was this year. But um, four, yeah. 2015, 2016, 2018, and twenty nineteen. So, lot and lot and pretty recent memory. So number eight, 
in those four seasons in which the Huskies made the frozen faceoff, how many finals did they appear in? One, two, three, or four? 2013, 18, would have been three, right? Four. They have appeared in all four. They've, they've only won it once, though, in 2016 over Duluth. So kind of interesting, right? So 2015, 2016, 2018, 2019, they've appeared in the final in in all of them. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, all besides that win in 2016, all of the other finals that they've lost have been one-goal contests, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. uh, Huskies have been in it for sure. Uh, the Huskies, this is, this is a difficult one. I can tell. Cause I mean, it's, it's hard. Cause it's like, you can't really rely on like players, you know, and that sort of thing. Team oh, records. Cause the other ones have been easy. Got it. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just saying like in general, I think this is difficult. Um, the Huskies are hoping to make the NCAA division one tournament this year. When was the first year that the Huskies made a regional tournament? 1987, 1989, 1995, or 2000? 95. 1989, they lost to Lake Superior State. They have made 14 tournament appearances. That 1989 tournament, that regional, is the only regional that the Huskies have played in that was a best of three, actually, before they rechanged the format there. I uh, didn't expect you to know that one. I will say all of these, though, are within probably a space of about four pages in the record book. Uh, when... <laughs> yeah, so F you, Nick. I'm just kidding. Um, Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. um, the last question for you here. When was the first time St. Cloud State won a NCAA regional tournament game? 2000, 2003, 2010, or 2013? 13, right? 2010, actually. They beat – 2013 was the second time they did. 2010, they beat Northern Michigan University in double overtime in St. Paul. St. Cloud has won the first game of the regional tournament in four of their last seven tournament appearances, making it to the Frozen Four once in 2013. I would say, honestly, um, obviously we know how the the recent regionals have gone, but um, St. Cloud, especially kind of in that that 2000s era, has really had some – some really good success. I would say that people don't realize that, especially, you know, frozen faceoffs in the NCAA tournament, St. Cloud has done a good job of, you know, getting out of that first round and having a good playoff tournament. They just haven't found a way to, you know, continue to kind of get over that piece of that. Nick, on a scale of one to ridiculousness, how ridiculous was that? <laughs> that was pretty ridiculous, but yeah. that's all right. Yeah, I, fun. Fe- I felt like it was pretty ridiculous. I'm going to have to think of like an extra trivia one to give you a little bit of a chance there. Nick, um, do you know what your final score was? <laughs> Uh, it was one and nine. <laughs> You're one and nine. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I kind of was kind of thinking about what what could we what could we do that is going to promote a little bit about uh, St. Cloud State and their playoff history as we move into tournament time here. But team records, I think, are a very difficult thing. So I didn't really give you a chance at all there. But we'll have to do another one, Nick. What do you want to What do you want to do for a trivia topic where I can give you a chance? What is something you think you would know well, like Minnesota Wild history, Minnesota Twins history, something for the summer? Wild or NHL history? Yeah. We could do that. Maybe give you, maybe give you a better chance and have somebody proofread my questions. But uh, um, <laughs> Nick, uh, one other thing we do have to get you. Normally, this is the day where we do our double minor giveaway. Um, we're gonna we're gonna put that on the back burner for a little bit just because of uh, kind of our t-shirt ordering and that sort of thing at the current point in time. Uh, and just because one, this was a very hefty episode, but two, we also have a lot going on with the playoffs and that sort of thing. Uh, Nick, do we have anything else that we need to um, address here before we uh, say sayonara for this episode? I don't think so. All right. Uh, well, 
Huskies Warming House podcast fans. Thanks again for joining us uh, for a riveting episode in which I just made Nick feel terrible about the rest of his day here. Uh, that will do it for episode number 52. Don't forget St. Cloud State is back in action, at least as far as we know right now, for game number one of the quarterfinals of the Frozen Faceoff in Grand Forks at 2.37 p.m. Central Time. Uh, and from there, I guess we're going to find out where they go as we'll have a showtime before uh, the next game of that tournament. So sayonara from the Huskies Warming House podcast and episode number 52.